Well, I am a dreamer. may not know me very well, but I am a dreamer in every sense of the word. I'm a visionary. I'm planning all the time. If you're familiar with uh, the Enneagram, I'm a seven adventure enthusiast. So I just think we should have more parties in life. We should be anticipating more fun and doing more things. So I dream a lot, but I'm also a dreamer in that natural sense. At night, I dream pretty much every night. Is anyone else in the house a dreamer? You wake up and you're like, what just happened? Sometimes you're just unloading your subconscious, right? And you're flying one minute and then you're underground the next. It's weird. Um, But I've had some dreams over the years that, um, according to my husband, are prophetic. And I had felt that too. I've had some recurring dreams that the Lord's spoken to me and encouraged encouraged me through. Maybe you've had some dreams like that. You're like, that wasn't just last night's pizza. That meant something, right? And I want to share one of these dreams with you that the Lord gave me probably, it's somewhere between 10 and 15 years ago. It was before our uh, daughter was born. She's 10. And I'm sharing this because I want to illustrate to you guys something um, that I have personally felt and maybe you have too. And it's living in between the tension of image and dust. And that's the title of my sermon, Image and Dust. And really, it's that tension between our potential and our limitations. How many of you guys know that that's a real thing? We, are in, we have tons of potential, but we're also so keenly aware of our limitations. And so this dream goes, I, I'm coming up um, with a group of people that are around me. And we're coming up from the basement level up into this like gymnasium, this coliseum. And there's people all over, all around um, like all around the sides, you can imagine. It wasn't just one side, it was people everywhere. And the people I could see were from like every um, tongue tribe and nation, right? It was like the world was sitting inside of this Colosseum. And out on the floor, I'm standing with this group of people kind of safely, and we're watching out in the middle of the floor, there's this guy, and it feels like there might have been a team of people out there too. But he is like an illusionist. He's like a magician. And he is levitating, not juggling. He's levitating these orbs up in the air. And they're kind of glowing. And they're they're kind of even pulsing. And he is like working his magic, okay, out on the floor. And the, the crowd is mesmerized. It's like they're in full trance watching this. And he had them in his hand. And I knew, I knew instinctively that it was a great deception, that it was a delusion. They had like scales over their eyes. And before I could even um, think twice about it, which is very characteristic of my personality anyway, I was out on that floor. And I was like declaring the word of God, like speaking out scripture in my language, in English, speaking out the scripture and teaching the gospel right there. And as the word of God went forth, okay, those orbs began to lose their power and drop to the ground, just one by one. And as they dropped to the ground, people would come out of the trance and start to weep and start crying. But it wasn't just sorrow. There was like rejoicing and laughter and salvation like broke out all around the Colosseum. And people were like, their eyes are opened to the good news, to the truth And um, they heard it in their language. I said it in English, but they heard it in their language. And there are just like, there's just this eruption of praise. It was like revival. The group that I was with came around me and I guess we discerned some kind of threat or like it was time to get out of there. And we left and the dream was over. 
I've had so many dreams over the years like that for probably at least 15 years, maybe more, um, even probably since I was a kid with that same flavor. I, I'm given a, a, I'm put in a position, a platform, a place, a situation where I get to teach the gospel or the Lord is, is putting the word in my lips. Like I'm, I just feel compelled. I have to share that. And that's a dream of mine. And I feel like that it's even potential of mine. But I have felt strong limitations in my life. I have felt that pull between, whoa, what a dream, what a desire, what potential, and whoa, I'm incredibly limited. And one of the things that I felt like has been one of my greatest limitations is that I'm a woman. And I know I'm standing on the stage today because Soma believes that women can be in ministry. But depending on how you were raised and what your beliefs are, that you may understand what I mean, how that could become, how that could be or feel like a limitation. So as a woman, I've lived between that potential and my limitation, between the image and between dust. And so what do I mean by image? I want you guys to turn to Genesis 1 real quick. That's going to be the easiest place you turn to, to this morning, okay? And this is our defining narrative, okay? This is telling us who we are, both man and woman, created in the image of God. And as you read Genesis 1, it's, gonna, it's familiar to you. Maybe every time you're determined to uh, read the Bible again, maybe you're like, oh, man, I need to get back in the Bible. You always start with Genesis 1. Right? Anybody done that before? You're like, oh, oh, I guess I'll go back to Genesis. You make it to like Genesis 5 or 6, and you're like, I'm just going to put this out there. Maybe just start in the New Testament. It's okay. You don't have to start in Genesis, okay? But Genesis 1 is what we've learned. It's the days of creation, the six days that God's just creating, and he's like, it's good, and he's creating, and he's saying it's good. And then on the seventh day, he rested, right? But look at Genesis 1, 26, he says, he, this is day six, animals, humankind. He's, he's doing all this stuff, creating, creator God. And he says, let us make human beings in our image to be like us. Let us, who's us? If you had a little Bible story book when you were a kid, you probably in the creation story, in the illustrations, it's just a, it's an old man, God. Just one old man God in the creation story. But did you know that in the beginning was the word? And the word is Jesus. He was there in the beginning. We know God was there, creator God. But it also says that the spirit was there hovering over the waters. The triune God was there in the beginning. Jesus and the Holy Spirit didn't just show up at some point in history. They were there. And, and he said, let us make man in our image so God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. In his divine image, both male and female. To be made in the image of God, both male and female, means that we are exploding with potential. We have the divine creator's capacity in our DNA, because we were created in his image. We were created to bear his image, to reflect his glory, his behavior. You know, it says we were created to have dominion over the earth, which is super cool. We have divine power, and we have divine purpose, and we have divine calling as image bearers of the Lord, both male and female, right? Women weren't a creative afterthought. Okay, God didn't create man and animals and then realize that he had made a blender. 
Okay, first of all, God doesn't make mistakes, right? So he wasn't like, oh, what was I thinking? I should probably create something for man. He wasn't like, oops, man shouldn't be alone. Because we were created out of the community of the Trinity, I can promise you women were a part of the integral plan all along. We weren't an afterthought, okay? Listen to how God refers to woman in Genesis 2.18, okay? Now, we're in 2.8.2, Genesis 2. We just had like the basic outline of creation in Genesis 1. But then we get into Genesis 2, and it's like we're getting more of the details, right? And so rather than reading this linear, in a linear fashion, you have to read it in layers, right? So it's like we just read the outline, if you've ever written papers, right? You have your outline with your A and the B. And now um, the author, Moses, is, he is developing it. So now we get to see a greater picture of what that looked like when God created woman, all right? So we, we find out we, he's created the garden and he tells, he puts man in the garden of Eden to tend it and to watch over it. He warns him. God warns man. He says, you may freely eat the fruit of every tree in the garden except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat its fruit, you are sure to die. So Adam had been given the warning. Then the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper who is just right for him. So look at what happens, you guys. It's almost like God's needing to make a point. He's wanting to uh, do a very heavily illustrated object lesson for Adam. And if you look here, look at verse 19. Look at what the Lord does. He forms the animals from the ground and all of these things. And look at what God did. He brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And the man chose a name for each one. We've gotten that very condensed in our, uh, in our children's uh, Bible storybook version of creation. We just think he created this, he created this, he created this, God, Adam named the animals. But if you see, the Lord's like, it's not good for him to be alone. And Adam's going to need an object lesson, an illustration for him to be convinced of that. And so God, if you'll notice, parades the animals across in front of Adam. Are you picturing this? I personally think God has a sense of humor. Okay, I don't think that he's a stoic, disengaged, doesn't think things are funny. We were created in his image, and we think things are funny, don't we? Right? Like, we like to watch America's Funniest Home Videos. We like to laugh, and I think God likes to laugh. And I think that there was some humor in this moment, that he's like, hey, um, Adam, what are you going to call these animals? And I think that what he was doing is he's parading them across. I think God's like, none of these are going to fit you, are they? Adam needed to recognize, like, hey, that's not a suitable helper. That doesn't fit me. We wouldn't work together here. A cat's great. I love their purr and their kitten, right? So much, so much comfort in them. This dog loves when I come home. He, I love the way he wags his tail. His loyalty is amazing. I get so much satisfaction when I ride this horse. But he's like, none of these are helpers. I have dominion over these things. These aren't suitable for me, right? I mean, is that not what he's saying? Because it says at the end of verse 20, but still there was no helper just right for him. There was no helper just right for him. He was like, he's not going to find it in these animals, right? 
So the Lord puts him to sleep. He takes his rib, right? He's got to put him to sleep for this. Puts, takes his rib, puts some dirt around it, brought woman to man, and man says, at last, at last, he exclaimed, this one, this one, not all of these animals God just paraded in front of me. This one is bone from my bone. This one is flesh from my flesh. She will be called woman because she was taken from me, meaning she is like me. These animals are not like me. If you'll see there in 18, he says, I will make a helper. Maybe your version right there says help meet. Does it? It's where we get that phrase. Um, my wife's my help meet. Okay. My help mate. And that word helper. I love the word helper, but the English language is falling painfully short and painfully oppressive right here in this word. This word helper actually is the Hebrew word ezer konegdo. All right? Ezer konegdo. The Lord's saying, I'm going to make you an ezer konegdo who's just right. And this word ezer, ezer is warrior. That's what it means, ezer. I'm going to make you a warrior. And konegdo means opposite or corresponding to. Not elevated above, not pushed beneath, corresponding with opposite to, like a companion. So a loose translation of that would be, I'm going to make you a helper, an Ezer Konegdo, a warrior companion. That's what God called Eve. And that word does never and has never implied subservience. And it has never, ever implied second ray or less than. Somehow in the culture and in the history of mankind, Woman somehow means less. But when you go right back to creation story, right back to scripture, it means warrior, companion. You guys should be hooting and hollering. I'm sorry. I think that's awesome. The men really ought to be, okay? Of the 21 times the phrase Ezer Konegdo is used in scripture, 21 times, 16 of those are used to refer to God himself. All right, the psalmist got this. David knew this because he was a man after God's own heart. Listen to this, Psalms 30, 10. Hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me. O Lord, be my helper. In the original, be my Ezer Konegdo. Be my warrior companion, Lord. Psalms 146, 5. But joyful are those who have the God of Israel as their helper, as their warrior companion, whose hope is in the Lord their God. God uses the same name for Eve as he's using for himself, you guys. So does that mean that God had some massive inferiority complex? Feeling less than man? Seriously, ask yourself that question. Was he just like, I'm so much less than man? I'm going to be subservient to him. No, not at all. He never created female for that. He never wanted man to think as woman as a second-rate citizen. He really listen to what God is saying. I am what Eve was meant to be for Adam, and I'm the great I am. I am what Eve is meant to be for Adam. Woman was created to be great. Woman was created to show up, okay? She was meant to show up, created to show up. She was meant for more than a distorted and oppressive view of submission. I'm just going to say that. I, have ne- I don't live under that. 
distorted sense of submission. I live in a home where my man knows I'm an Ezer Conigdo, and he's glad about it. And he wants his daughter to be an Ezer Conigdo. He doesn't want me silent. He wants me speaking. He needs me to show up. Tony wants me to show up. He needs me to show up. He doesn't want to oppress my strengths. He's, he's over there going, I need them. And he admits it. And I don't lord anything over him, and he's not lording anything over me. God knew the kind of help that man needed would demand a full deployment of women's strengths, her gifts, and the best she has to offer. The best she has to offer, because she's not an animal. She's not something he has dominion over. So we are rife, both male and female, rife with the potential, divine potential of God, right? And I hope that you've got that. I hope you feel empowered, both male and female. If you have felt as a man oppressed, if you have felt like in this demasculation of men in our culture, if you have felt, I mean, you don't even watch Disney shows. They make men look like idiots. If you have felt that, I want you as a man to feel the divine potential that God has put in you. The world is trying to silence that. Be strong in the Lord. But women, you too, show up. We need a full deployment of our strengths, especially in these last days. We do. But we are also dust, are we not? I remember that one pastor that says we're butt dust, but it's from that scripture, we are butt dust. Okay, anyway. <laughs> God formed us out of the dirt. I mean, he takes mud, essentially. He takes the earth and he forms us. We are like lumps of clay, remember, in the potter's hands. We're lumps of clay. One preacher says we are the original biodegradable containers. From the earth we came to the earth we return, ashes to ashes, dust to dust, right? We came, so even though we're created in the divine's image, right, we are also created with some major limitations. Hello, our mortality. I, I don't think any of you are mutants. You're not immortal. In Christ, obviously we are. But we have these limitations, right? And we find ourselves living in that tension between, yeah, I'm, I'm created in the image of God and I have divine potential, but I'm painfully aware of my limitations. And it made me think of tug of war. How many of you guys have played tug of war before? It's terrible. It's just terrible. Especially if you're on the losing team, right? And they try to equally match and you guys know the premise of tug of war. You know, there's usually like a little bandana, a rope or something. And they usually just draw a line. And then the stronger team that gets the ribbon across the line wins, right? And it, but it's usually a pretty, you know, that's give and take, give and take. Well, when we were youth pastors, we were youth pastors for seven years. And we put on our own camps because we wanted extra, okay? And we would play tug of war. And it was never just a line. It would be like a vat of pudding, or uh, soggy oatmeal. There would be something that the losing team fell into. Do you know what I mean? And you maybe you've seen the ones where there are two teams across like this chasm of mud, like a mud pit. Do you know what I'm talking about? And then the losing team's just tumbling into the mud. Y'all probably haven't played those kinds. Those are the fun kinds though, right? But I thought of that whenever I was considering the tension that I personally have lived in, and I know because I'm a pastor and I have the privilege of talking to women all the time for 21 years. 
And I know that we've lived right there in that tension between our potential and our limitations. And there's days that we're like, if it pulls any tighter, this is going to snap, right? Ladies, we're just there. And in that tension between longing for us, our goals and our dreams and our desires to be fulfilled, but also so aware of how limited that we are. Now, we've all probably read uh, self-help books. Anybody read a self-help book? They're like, I want to get better in this area. I need help in this area. Maybe you've at least Googled five steps to being rich or seven steps to meeting your, you know, achieving your best life now. You know, and I don't think that those are wrong. In fact, I think that it's the Lord for us. It's something in us being created in his image. He wants us to meet the potential that he's put inside of us, right? He's like, I don't want you to squander that. I want you to meet your potential. So turn to Ephesians 2 real quick. This is an incredible scripture for this. I want, to, I want to start in verse 8, Ephesians 2, 8. It says, God saved you by his grace when you believed, right? It's pretty easy. We've somehow complicated salvation. But he saved us by his grace when we believed. And you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Salvation's a gift from God. It is not a reward for the good things that we have done. So none of us can boast about it. I'm going to actually break down 8 and 9 here in a minute. But look at verse 10. For we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things that he planned for us long ago. Do you know that he has good things that he planned for you? You were in your mother's womb and he's like, "Mm, I got a hope and a future for them. I have put so much divine capacity and potential in that little body and they're going to grow up and I have good things that I want them to accomplish. Good things. So it's not wrong. We should, we should have that thing and that drive in us that's like, I want to do the good things that God has called me to do. I have dreams. He put them in there, right? But there is very, very little in our culture that is celebrating our limitations, right? Our weaknesses, I haven't seen that on the New York Times bestseller, okay? Nobody's flocking to Barnes & Noble to find those books. It's all about our potential and meeting our goals and being our best self and, you know, getting, getting ahead. But the reality is we have limitations, I know that Townsend and Cloud, uh, Henry Cloud and Townsend wrote a book, Boundaries. If you haven't read that, do it, get it, order it, and read it because it's incredible. It's teaching us about how we have natural boundaries in our lives that we need in our relationships for them to be healthy. And that's because we have limitations, and limitations are okay. We all have them. And you're probably already thinking of your limitations, right? Raise your hand if you thought of limitations in your life. It's almost always women, but I appreciate you men for your honesty. Thank you. So I want to add a few more limitations that maybe you hadn't thought of, okay? Not for you to mill on, but I want us to recognize that there are limitations that we struggle with in that tension between our potential and our limitations. And the first one is this. It is gender. Now, most men are not born thinking, um, I can't believe I was born a man. But women, and especially as they grow and they try to achieve, they feel that limitation of being a woman. 
because there are these prescribed roles and there are these expectations. We've come a long way. But there are a lot of women who wish they were born a man because they're not just getting the same opportunities that men have gotten. Like I said, I think we've come a long way. But if you don't think that gender is an issue in our society, then you're not paying attention because there are men who are going to great lengths and desperate measures to become women. They feel like that's a limitation. The transgender epidemic in our society, and there are women, vice versa, who resent so much that they were born female that they're taking drastic measures to become male. Is that not true? Are we not seeing this epidemic? Rather than a celebration of male and female, the uniqueness of that, the limitation has become crippling in their hearts. And they are bound. They're bound. Can we celebrate male and female? Can the church celebrate that? Another limitation is, a fa- is your family of origin. Where you were born. What color is your skin and what accent do you have? And if you're white, you probably have never felt that. But it is an issue. Your family of origin, the people of color and with a different accent struggle and they feel like it is a limitation. Whether you think racism is real or not, it is. And you may not appreciate how it's being handled, but we have a responsibility to empower and to bring equality in that. Each of us were created. These people are created in his divine image, right? I want to kind of quickly go through these. Our minds are a limitation. Some of you are like, yeah, I know that's right. <laughs> Listen, I'm never going to do advanced math. I'm just not. I so admire you if you can. I, I admire anybody who has their times tables memorized, okay? Because I'm like nines. Still don't know the nines. I'm just pretty limited there. I'll know what the deal is with math. But we just have some limitations in our minds, right? Can I get an amen? Some people were just born with dizzying intellect. And then some people are just like, they got street smarts, (laughs) you know? (laughs) And that's good. The Lord says, uh, we will know and now we know in part. Then we will fully know. Do you know that that's just a limitation that the Lord has given us? Ladies, we're not going to figure it all out. We're not. That's okay. Step out of the tension of that. Our personalities and our emotional wiring... There's, there's rarely a time that Tony and I have been involved in a personality test, like um, in physiology or in other groups, like discovery groups, that someone doesn't go, I didn't want to be that, right? Have you ever done that? You're like, oh, and you read the, you read the uh, details of your personality type, and you're like, dang, <laughs> that wasn't who I wanted to be. Or your emotional wiring, and you're like, I know I cry all the time. And you can feel like that that is a limitation, our socioeconomic positions, how, what, what, how were you brought up? Were you brought up to think that education was important or did you start working at 16 and never looked back? I mean, a lot of people aren't given the opportunity to go to college. They can't afford it. Maybe their parents didn't encourage it. Not that college is, you know, the end all. But maybe you get stuck in a career and you're like, I don't have training in any other thing. And you want to provide more for your family But your socioeconomic position has kept you very capped. And that's common. 
That is really common. If you haven't experienced that, that's okay, good. But there are people who have. They feel like they can't get any further than their, their uh, minimum wage job. And that would be so limiting, right? Feel so limiting. I think our seasons of life are natural limitations, right? The season of life that we find ourselves in, you know, like if you are in college in your season of life and you're like, I'm just trying to check the boxes, get from point A to point B, get my degree, and you feel very limited. Or if you're single, we've heard singles so often be like, I just need to get married. And they feel limited because they're not married, right? And they're just like, I just need to find a, a spouse. And then they do get married and then they have kids and then they feel limited by their kids, okay, right? You're just, you're wishing, oh, remember our college days? You start dreaming. Remember when we didn't have kids? And then you, you raise your kids and you become an empty nester and you spent the last 25 years raising those kids and they're out and now you're like, who am I? What am I supposed to be doing with my life? So much of our focus was on raising these kids. Our season of life can feel like a limitation, right? And every mom in the house said, amen. Because it can, and it is. They're real limitations. I think that a limitation that we have, and it's some, this is one I really want to spend some time on, is our perception of our giftings and our callings. What we feel gifted and called to do. I want to take it a step further and say our capacity. Like the capacity that we feel like to have to, to do these things, the gifts and the calling that God put on our lives. I think for women, this is one of the most um, tempting places for us to start comparing. We will compare women are pros at comparing. We are men. You might have your version of it. I don't know. But women, we are comparers. And we can begin to feel incredibly limited when we compare our gift and our calling and our capacity with other women. We do. We're looking around like, oh, I could never do it that way. There's that quote, comparison is the thief of all joy. Have you heard that? It is, male or female. This is no respecter of genders, okay? It's a thief of joy. But I want to add to that. I want to put a PS to that statement. I think that comparison is a thief to potential. It's, it's a thief to potential relationships and friendships. If you're constantly comparing yourself to the, the woman around you, to the women around you, it's going to be a thief to the potential friendship that you could have with that person. It's a thief to your potential growth and maturity because you're not going to want to grow and mature because you're just constantly putting yourself up there comparing. What happens inevitably when we begin to compare? What is the, the fruit of that? Is jealousy. We just start to get jealous. And, and jealousy is one of those words that I think that we're casual with because we're, we're always like, I was totes jelly. <laughs> like I saw her outfit. And we are playful about, je about jealousy. And I think it's because we think that jealousy is like, um, I just really want that. And we, we think that that's just a casual to look at that and be like, oh, I just really want that. But I want you guys to look at Psalms 27 or Proverbs 27, 4. Anger is cruel and wrath is like a flood, but jealousy is even more dangerous. This is a big deal. Jealousy is a big deal, and we skirt past that one because we don't think that's on the Big Ten list. We don't see the effects of jealousy, but it is a silent killer. It is. Look at this. 
Anger is cruel and wrath is like a flood. Have we not in our society in America this year watched on the screens, right, the effects of anger and wrath? Cities are burning because of anger and wrath. We see it. People are hurt and they're angry and they're misguided. And we watch it like a flood go through. I mean, cities are boarding up windows because of the election, you guys. Anger and wrath. It's cruel and it's like a flood. But do you see what it says? Even more dangerous than that is jealousy. To be jealous of someone. It's incredibly threatening to our potential, to our joy. So here is my working definition of jealousy. This is one, I don't know, I don't think you're going to find this in Urban Dictionary, but this is the one that I have, okay? My definition of jealousy is this, the inability or the unwillingness to celebrate someone's successes. It's the inability, like you just hadn't been trained, like somebody didn't teach you to celebrate that. I actively teach that in my home with my kids. I teach them to celebrate someone's success. Their gifting, their talent, celebrate it. Don't you be jealous of that to celebrate it. Or it's an unwillingness. You're just unwilling to celebrate that because it maybe feels like a threat to you. Maybe it feels like it's making you feel smaller and they look so much bigger and it makes me feel smaller so it feels like a threat so it's really hard to celebrate that success. Maybe you're over there going, well, why didn't I get that? Right? where's Where's my new stuff? And it's an unwillingness. Did you guys know, ladies, listen to me, it is very hard to be friends with someone you're competing with. Men, same. I'm sure y'all compete in your own ways. It's hard to have a deep connection with someone when you're constantly in your heart and mind competing and comparing yourself with their gift, their call, their capacity. You're like, man, you're, you know, you're on social media. I'm telling you, it's setting you up, okay, to compare. And you're like, oh my gosh, she, she just had a baby and ran a marathon. I didn't even get out of my pajamas today. (laughs) And you're like, oh my gosh, she grows her own wheat and mills it and makes bread. And you're like, I got a frozen bag of Mrs. Baird's in the the freezer with freezer burn on it. I'm nothing. I mean, it happens, you guys. We, We begin to compare. It's hard to be friends with them because we're over here feeling either this small, right, And you're like, I'll never be that. I can't be it. And it's like, come on, show up, women. Show up. Celebrate those successes. Show up for each other. Be like, yeah, girl. I'm glad you got that. Celebrate it. Because here's what happens. If we compare our gifts and callings and we live in this perpetual state of jealousy, we're going to either end up doing one of two things. We're going to either end up striving or underachieving. Watch for it. Watch for it. You won't just stay the same. You're either going to strive for something the Lord's going, hold up, sister, I didn't tell you to do that. Settle down. You're saying yes to too many things because you're trying to find your worth and your value and trying to look like this girl on Instagram. You don't even know how to grow wheat. Back off. Seriously, you guys. So we'll either end up striving and we will wear ourselves out wear ourselves out trying to look like everybody else rather than just accepting what this is that the Lord 
has put in your life or will underachieve. And sadly, I see this just as much. You'll get immobilized. It'll, it'll be like paralysis of your emotions and you're like, well, I'm never going to be able to write a, uh, publish a book. So, and I guess I won't ever have a podcast. And I'm not going to be invited to, we- to speak at Women of Faith. So I'm just not going to do anything. And we begin to underachieve. Women, you will. You'll just sit back on your haunches and not go for the things that the Lord's called you to because you're sitting there comparing your gifts and your calling and your capacity to someone that the Lord graced to do that. He's got grace for you to do what he's called you to do. So what if our limitations aren't something that we're supposed to fight and pull against like this tug of war and we end up on our faces, right? What if that's not what God is saying at all, because we recognize, oh yes, we've got potential and oh yes, we've got limitations. But what if that's where we find God right there in the middle of our limitations and our potential? What if we looked at it, not like a tug of war, but like a hammock? Okay. This is the picture the Lord gave me. Cause I was thinking about the tug of war. I've lived in the tension of the tug of war. Can I get a witness? I've lived there. And you just think, it's going to snap any minute. And the Lord's like, what if, what if I can show you my will for your life between your limitations and your potential? When you look at this hammock, this was Aiden's, by the way, totally reflects him. What do you think of? Rest. You think camping, not necessarily restful, but you get the idea. You think, rest. Have you ever been somewhere and you saw a hammock and you're just like, I got to get in that hammock. I need to get in that hammock. And you see people in hammocks and you're just like, look at them. You go. You're in that hammock. What if? What would happen if we stopped striving and trying to prove something? Okay? What would happen if we stopped comparing and self-deprecating? You guys know that tension, like the tension in this uh, rope, is actually an imbalance of power. But suspension, which is what a hammock represents, is being securely anchored on both sides equally, an equal distribution. And so you're suspended there. It's not tense. It's suspended. So like this hammock, what if we, rather than fought it, we stepped into it. We entered into his rest. Now, anyone who's gotten into one of these kind of hammocks, it's trial and error, right? You're like, that thing's going to flip me right out of there, right? But you got to crawl in, right? You're like, I got to put one leg in, got to get my hip in, I'm going to lay back, whoa, you know? But you're like, it takes, you got to take some intentionality, doesn't it? We have to learn to enter his rest, and we can. You guys turn to Hebrews 3. There at the very end of Hebrews God is talking about Israel and about how he, uh, how they rebelled. I mean, it's, it's like our lesson, our living illustration. They rebelled in the, in the wilderness. He had created Sabbath for them. You guys know that Sabbath, as we just read in Genesis 1, was written into the creation story. It predates the law. Sabbath isn't just law. It is. It's a part of us. It's a part of creation. But he had to institute Sabbath, the seventh day Sabbath, for Israel because he wanted them to rest. He wanted them to rest. 
But he wanted them to trust him that on that seventh day, he would provide. He would provide. They could rest from all of their labors. It was for them. It was for them to build their trust and their confidence in the Lord. And he did it, and he did it, and he did it. He provided the manna. And he did. But you know what else it was meant to do? It was also meant to be a light to the nations. The other watching nations are watching this multi-million people tribe wander through the wilderness and they're fed every day. And even on the days they don't go out and work for it. Our rest, Israel's rest, was meant to be the greatest evangelism tool to the whole world. Did you know our rest is meant to be a tool of evangelism? That we are meant to enter into rest? But look at what he says at the end of chapter 3. He says, um, wasn't it the people? He said, well, he says, and to whom was God speaking when he took an oath that they, that they would never enter his rest? Wasn't it the people who disobeyed him? So we see that because of their unbelief, they were not able to enter his rest because their unbelief that God was trustworthy and he would take care of them. They wouldn't climb inside the hammock. They kept striving. It was because of their unbelief that God had them, that he had them, right? Look at what chapter four says. God's promise of entering his rest still stands. Guys, this still stands. Do you know the word right here for rest? It's a Greek word I can't pronounce, but the root word of it, I could, and it's pause. We get our English word pause from this word right here about God's rest. Cease from striving. Pause. And when you see a hammock, do you not think that? Hmm. I'm going to cease from all the other things and swing in this hammock. And he says, it still stands, you guys. God's rest still stands. It matters. It goes even further. So we ought to tremble with fear that some of you may fail to experience it. We ought to be like concerned, very, very concerned that we see our sisters not in the hammock. We ought to be like, get out of the tug of war. We need to be like running towards him and be like, come on, come on, enter his rest. We should be concerned when we're so frayed and frazzled and spread so thin that a hammock is foreign to us. Hammock, what's a hammock? We should be so concerned because we aren't believing God if we aren't resting. Resting in our limitations, resting in our weaknesses, resting in our potential, you guys. This is God's rest he's talking about here. Look at what he says in verse 10. For all who have entered into God's rest have rested from their labors just as God did after creating the world. This is not just about a seventh day rest. It is about that. And some of you guys have not been Sabbathing and you need to. You need to find Sabbath rest. God takes it very seriously, okay? But this is about a resting in your spirit, trusting the Lord. He says, so let us do our best to enter that rest. But if we disobey God as the people of Israel did, we will fall. And you know what? That's what happens in tug of war, is it not? Isn't there a team that falls, that ends up tumbling into the mud? are on their faces in chocolate pudding? I mean, it happens because they're not resting. One translation says, be diligent to enter that rest. 
It's there. The rest is there. The hammock is there, right? But he's not going to force it upon us. He's so sovereign like that, that he doesn't force things. I will tell you this. He might arrange things in your life. We had a, I wasn't going to share this, but we had, we had a blue healer. It was a cattle dog. And when the boys were little, and before they knew it, if they were scattered around the yard, before they knew it, and, and they never even recognized it, but Tony and I watched this, that blue healer had them in a tight little pod in the yard, and they didn't even know. They would be, and they'd scatter out, they would scatter out and play, and then Shiloh would just <laughs> nudge them, and before you know it, they're all kind of playing together. I think the Lord does that in our lives sometimes, and I think that he uses limitations to do it. Be like, hey, you, um, I need you over here. Stop. So he's not going to force us. We have to enter that rest. And clearly we re- enter that rest through faith, right? And you know, we've been given a measure of faith to do it. But it takes diligent faith. Diligent faith to stay in that rest. It's not passive. It's diligent trust. Relying on clinging to Jesus and his work for us. That his grace is sufficient. We can enter into that rest. We can stop striving. So back to my dream. And just that thing that's inside of me. This desire. I want to be on. I want to be teaching. I, I would, I'll teach wherever, right? But I have had seasons that I was so aware of my limitations. And I used to fight against, the, against those limitations, like in a tug of war, like everybody help, you know, fight against my limitations. And the Lord had to teach me. I had to learn how to enter his rest, learn how to enter his rest as a wife, learn how to enter his rest as a mother, as a pastor, as a sister, as a friend. I had to learn what does it mean for me to enter that rest? I had to learn it. Back to Ephesians 2.10, remember, we have the good works. We acknowledge that. We have potential. But look, our works won't save us. They won't save us. We're saved to accomplish those things, right? Our worth, our value, it's not in our works. It's in Christ. It's in Him. And it's in him that we can accomplish these things. If God put the dream and the desire in me, he will equip me to do it in his time and for his good purposes. And I had to learn that, to step out of the tension, climb into the hammock and be like, you know what? I'm going to say yes to the things that he's told me to say yes to and no to the things he told me to say no to. I'm going to stop striving, but I'm also not going to let my limitations be a big, fat, lazy excuse to not go for the things, right? And that leads me to the second thing. Be faithful where you're at. Luke 16, 10, this is a family verse. He who is faithful in a very little thing is faithful also in much. Why would the Lord want me to export a good if I wasn't willing to import it? Why would he send me out here if I'm not willing to do it here, right? I had to learn to be faithful where I am at. And these dreams that God has given me about speaking and teaching are less about me being out on some platform and more about me being faithful to the call of God on my life. So that meant teaching at uh, kids clubs in an apartment complex. 
That meant teaching in Sunday school, teaching at Selma Kids. Stephanie still has me on the rotation, not because I'm obligated, but because it is an honor to teach children the word of God. That is not a chore. We should not be begrudging in serving in Selma Kids. That's being faithful where you're at. Don't be asking for some crazy influence and platform and some grandiose thing and not come and serve kids. All right? I came down hard on that. But listen, you got to be faithful in the little things that the Lord has called you to do, the opportunities that God has called you to. My kid's school needed a Bible teacher. Hey, I'll teach it. Co-op. Mission trips, I've, got, I've had the privilege of going on international mission trips since I was 13 years old. I love it. And a couple of occasions, I was in Ethiopia, and the Lord did fulfill dreams, literally fulfill dreams. Literally, I was teaching in a crowd of Ethiopians and praying, and they heard me in their language. It's, it's true. It's a documented story. Another time I was with a friend and we were visiting some, some pastor friends in Ethiopia and we wanted to go to this revival that was happening in Addis. We were weaving through alleys and little back roads trying to get to this structure. Thousands of Ethiopians are there. We're just trying to sort of slip in, you know, but they are so honoring and they drug us white girls. It was three of us, white girls, front and center up to the front. Incredibly humbling. Honestly, I really wanted to crawl in a hole. Okay, because I'm like, all these people have, have waited hours and walked for miles, miles and miles and miles to get to this revival. And they usher us across the front seat. And before we, and we're just, I mean, the presence of the Lord. Listen, we're, people are getting saved all over the place. People are getting healed. We watched a leg grow longer. Okay, it happens. And we're just in the present. We're just like amazed. And they're like, they call us up. And I'm like, they're like, you have a word for us. Well, I didn't. I was just there to be served, okay? And, but I was like, do you think that I was like, oh, no, I'm so limited. No. I was like, all right. And I preached the word. I had an opportunity to preach the word. I just like, Lord, I'll be faithful. You open the door. I'm going to walk through that, right? And then the third thing that I had to learn in staying in the hammock Staying in that rest, being diligent to stay in the rest was to keep my heart in check. Because here's the thing. Do we not walk through the world? Are we not influenced by the things of the world? We are. We just pick up dust and dirt along the way. And before I know it, I'm, I'm in a heart, my heart's in a sign of a place of um, comparison again. So I have to watch those signs in my life. Am I starting to compare? Am I, when I'm starting to feel insecure, what's up? If I'm feeling insecure in this area, what am I doing? Am I comparing? Am I feeling shame in an area? If I'm feeling weary, have I said yes to something I shouldn't have said yes to? All right? Am I, am I um, maxing myself? Am I doing this in my own strength? Because I want to remind you that when God calls you to something, the good works that God's called you to do, he didn't call you to this good work and stress. Stress is not from him. Hard work is from the Lord. Diligence and endurance is from the Lord. Stress and anxiety, not from God. We are not appropriating something well in our lives if we are constantly under stress and anxiety. It is not from the Lord, you guys. It is not. You are not in the hammock. You are in the tug-of-war game between your limitations and potential. 
And I know when I'm at that place and the stress levels are high and maybe anxiety is high and I'm feeling more insecure than I did as a 13-year-old girl, listen, I need to climb back into his rest. Be diligent. Take a step of faith and enter into his rest. It means I've climbed out and I got to get back in. We are image and we are dust. And it's beautiful. It's awesome. We aren't the sum total of our strengths and we aren't the sum total of our weaknesses. We're his children. We are potential and we are limitation. And we can have, be pulled limb from limb in the tension or we can rest in his grace. Amen? All right, you guys stand with me. I want to pray over us. Lord, we are graciously aware that we are your image bearers, Lord. And Lord, we really do want to reflect your glory. We want to reflect your character because the world is watching and we want to honor you and we want to live our lives worthy. We are part of your kingdom and we want to act becoming as citizens of your kingdom, Lord. And we are also aware of these places in our life that we feel incredibly limited. But Lord, we're asking right now, would you help us find your will in those places? Help us find that you're sufficient, that you're enough, that we have all we need, and we can rest. We can rest in a suspended state of grace. Because you hold us. You carry us. And your word promises that he who began a good work will be faithful to complete it. Lord, would you help us rest in that? In a contented, peaceful, laid-back kind of way. God, you've got us. Help us enter that rest and be diligent to stay there. In Jesus' name, amen.